Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman, and I'm here with my co-host, Laura Chan Baker. Hello. While Laura is deep into producing our 10th season, which will be a deep dive into the business of illustration, we're going back to our beloved Open Tabs format for a ninth season. Loosely based on our popular event series with the same name, for the rest of the season, Laura and myself will be coming together each week and going through some of our own open browser tabs, providing insight into the creative industry from our unique points of view. Using the internet as our lens, we hope to explore a variety of current events, opinions, and tools to provide thought-provoking conversation for anyone whose job it is to bring creative things to life, but mostly, it's a chance for us to talk a lot of balderdash. Laura, welcome back. How are you? Look, I'm good, although I just noticed something that... I want to know if anyone else has noticed this and if it's bugging anyone else, but we say the word deep twice in the first sentence of this intro, and I just realized that, and I think now I'm not going to be able to unhear it. Do you reckon that's a problem? Where's the second deep? While Lara is deep into producing our 10th season, which will be a deep dive. (laughs) It's too deep. Who copy edited that? No one. You did it without (laughs) my... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How are you, Jeremy? I'm okay. You know, I'm feeling very vindicated at the moment, actually. I don't know if you listen to This American Life regularly or not, but I was listening yesterday to the newest episode and Ira Glass is doing a bit of a pre-roll kind of ad for Pocket Cast. And in this conversation, he reveals that he listens to podcasts at 1.5 to 2x. And I did a little fist pump in the car of validation. I feel good. I feel good about my choices. I'm kind of just riding that wave into you recording this episode. You just to validate every choice for you. Basically, basically, I'm I'm, I'm okay with it. I think we will just keep that 2x energy going into this episode. And I will get us started with the first link of the week. And this is something I have opened. It's a new potential app from, well, not potential, it is a new app from the team over at Basecamp. And one of their founders, Jason Freed, posted in Twitter a few weeks ago that not only are they working on version four of Basecamp, but they're going to be launching their first ever kind of new product. And their new product, it's called Hey, and they have launched this kind of placeholder at hey.com. And yeah, it's pretty interesting. I have no idea kind of what it is. From everything that I can see, it is going to be some kind of email client. And I mean, Basecamp are amazing marketers. So the way that they've kind of gone about it is they have this landing page up and it says email is great, but it needs some love. Below, we shared 25 fundamental issues we see with email. And they're saying that, hey, is handles all of them on day one. This April, you'll see how, which is pretty ambitious. Like, I mean, it's it's great marketing. I love this page. And so what they're doing is asking everyone to kind of send a story about how they feel about email. It could be a love story, hate story, and that's how they're going to kind of go about giving invites. I mean, I've always had weird issues with Basecamp in the last few years because they talk so much about doing these kind of six-week sprints on these things and new products and stuff like that. But Basecamp, I haven't seen really develop that much. I mean, obviously, they're working on a lot of things. So if they're going to be addressing all 25 of these points, it would be amazing to see how they do it. Just to give you some background, here's three of them that I particularly struggle with. So one, if you don't start the thread, you're stuck with other people's terrible, non-descriptive email subjects. And I just think Ooh. this is so funny. I, like, we have jobs that run over email and not over Basecamp sometimes. And sometimes I remember there's one where a client sent us kind of a panic email and all caps with exclamation points. And that went on for like 40 or 50 emails. Like when we're like, and nobody decided to just kind of change the thread for some reason. But yeah, that goes on to my second or number one pet peeve, which is conversations about the same thing are often split across multiple threads. So annoying. Or conversations Mm -hmm. may start an email, but they may continue somewhere else. So, I mean, 
I've always kind of thought that email as its own is, I mean, a really great project management tool if you use it right. And Lara, as you were speaking last week about these homegrown apps, like we've actually developed a little app ourselves to kind of handle some of these things. So yeah, it's interesting to see how this is kind of being taken on by them. I'm definitely going to be getting into this. There is a bit of an email renaissance at the moment. I, rem- I think I did a bit of a rant the other season about trying to get on Superhuman, which is this one app that you know everyone's kind of talking about at the moment. There's a bunch of new ones that are trying to kind of give people focus and just make email a bit better to use. But yeah, I'm really intrigued by this. I've got it open in my tabs because I'm thinking, yeah, I might write in because I really want to be first in on this. Oh, I'm definitely going to. I think they're going to do really well. Um, Laura, did any of these points kind of particularly resonate with you? And is this something that you're going to give a crack when it comes out? totally keen to check it out as you said like I'm right there with you and that I really respect Basecamp and I think if anyone's going to create a product I mean so many people have tried to disrupt email but not in any ways that have actually been lasting or have actually kind of solved more problems than they've created or at least just prolonged but I think if anyone's going to be able to do it perhaps it's Basecamp and I also am I really like email when it's used well and email is way way less of an issue for me now that I'm freelancing compared to like when I have been working within a company and I'm getting everyone's sort of company-wide emails or millions of emails from clients. It's just quite different for me now, but there are lots of things that could be better. One thing I love about product design in any area is when the, and they've made it really transparent with this list of kind of issues they're hoping to solve is when they come up with things that, I don't know, me or perhaps other people as well might not have actually even thought of as an issue, not because it's not a problem, but because you just think of it as something that, well, that's the way it has to be. And I really love when product designers are able to kind of come up with, well, you know, really challenge something and think like, why does it have to be that? And the one that really stuck out to me there was when they say files are attached to emails, not the other way around. And I think for me, it's always like, of course, it's led by the message because it's email, but that doesn't have to be the case. And it's so annoying when you're searching for a file in big threads of long emails, some PDF that a client sent to you ages back. And I love that little leading idea of files are attached to emails, not the other way around. Absolutely. I mean, it looks like they're going to take a big swing here. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. I know that they tried to kind of implement certain, well, not implement, but Basecamp did have kind of a a chat thing called Campfire that was specific to projects in Basecamp. And then Slack came out and that kind Mm. of, I guess, you know, got at that. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they address it. We'll probably come back and discuss it at another point later on. But Lara, get us started. What's your first link of the week? So my first link this week is something called Fonts Ninja and it's a Chrome extension and I love extensions probably too much because I know that they can kind of make your computer a bit slow but if you could see my Chrome window right now I have like eight active extensions currently for all sorts of things. But this is one I've been loving. It's called Fonts Ninja. And what it does is it shows you basically every font that's being used on any given site with amazing accuracy. And it kind of includes the specifics, like whether they're using the regular, the bold, the condensed or so on sort of version and the point size of that font. And it'll also show you similar fonts and you can test out those fonts Legally, for example, if you're like creating a design for a client, it lets you test those fonts out or similar ones. And then it also provides links to buy the licenses if the client then approves it, which I like that it's kind of further promoting that side of things as well. But Why do look, you like I'm this not though? a designer. I know I'm not a designer. I'm not a typesetter, <laughs> but like 
Isn't type interesting? You don't think type in general is interesting? I think it's fun to see what different people are using and actually kind of learn to recognize the different fonts. I like seeing when people are using something quite generic versus something that is maybe was like custom designed for them or from a particular type foundry rather than something that's just available with like Adobe Cloud font library. And I just find that really interesting. But yeah, I'm obviously this would be far more useful for people who actually kind of work in design. One thing that it has been helpful for me though is when I'm thinking about copy and the amount of copy I want somewhere, it's kind of been useful for me to look at like when I'm looking at site references that I like, this is when I'm writing web copy, I'm looking at site references that I like and I can kind of get a sense for like what size font they're using and how that kind of might look and how much sort of text they've gotten that I've been using it for. But predominantly, it's just because it's interesting. It is super interesting. I mean, one thing to kind of note is that it only works with the type foundries that have signed up to kind of use it in that way. I think, yeah, one of the biggest things here is to be able to kind of sample and use the type in, I guess, in specific layout apps. And with type design just kind of exploding and so many different smaller foundries, you know, being around, like, yeah, it can be. It's great that there's so many kind of different typefaces being used at the moment. And yeah, like, I guess in, in some places, yeah, we're really proud of kind of supporting independent foundries as well. And But it's one of those things that's always been really challenging to figure out, like, yeah, how do we use it? And how can we kind of take it for a real drive? Because it's like, well, once you have license, like, yeah, you can pretty much just kind of use it however you want. And, and typeface design and type foundries have amazing value-based pricing methodologies. So yeah, it was really interesting to see this and kind of open it up a bit more to allow kind of designers to use it because then that will obviously have a big decrease in piracy as well. So yeah, and I love how this is executed. I'm really curious who's it's behind it. It's just a really nicely the- designed little extension, you know, like it's simple. It does exactly what you want it to do. And the actual, the way that it presents the information to you is really beautifully executed. I, I just think it's great. It is great. Awesome. Good one, Lara. My next one of the week is from the New York Times. I look forward to this piece coming out every year. This is the best illustration. I'm not sure why it's coming out here in February, but this is the New York Times' annual rundown of the best illustration that they've commissioned throughout the year. And oh, I think it's I just, good because it would have been lost in the noise of all the best of lists if it came out in like December. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I'm just trying to kind of figure out, yeah, like what the context is. And basically, I mean, as they say, it's the most memorable illustrations of the year and the work they're looking forward to in 2020. So it's actually, yeah, the timing kind of could be good in terms of setting the tone. But yeah, I think the New York Times has such a special place in my heart. Not only do I think they have just the best storytelling, bar none, from reporting to just on every single level, but the art direction is just so amazing. Our very first commission for Jackie Winter was a bean that was commissioned for the book review. And so obviously even more of a special place in our heart there. But I just think they really kind of set the bar for what illustration can do as a storytelling medium. And since they've been kind of putting out these different pieces, it just, yeah, it further emphasizes that. I mean, this page is just an overview of all different pieces they've commissioned. There's some amazing work from Jackie Winter artists like Carrie Vandergott, for example, who had some very prominent pieces in the book review this year. But I just kind of think whenever I'm giving advice, especially commercial advice to people, like editorial is always kind of where I say to start. Because if you can develop a relationship with an art director, then advertising people will kind of see it from there. It's got steady income potentially, or just like it's a it's a great kind of launching pad. And I always use this piece as reference to show people because I just think it's the best of what's going on right now. I mean, looking at this is also kind of depressing in some ways as well, because the work is so good. And you also realize that, and this will come into play more in my next link. It's like, well, 
can the industry support all of these amazingly talented illustrators? Because the Times is a great supporter of graduate illustrators as well. Obviously, they're in the right geographic area to do that. I mean, it's hard to describe without actually kind of looking at the page itself, especially the way that they're using animation and motion. And these are pieces that are coming from individual practitioners and not motion kind of design studios is really kind of encouraging. And just the different ways that stories are being told in this area, just like, oh, it's just it's so good. Like, I'm, I'm just going to go through it for weeks and pour over it. Having some insight into editorial budgets, how does that make you feel? I mean, because there are a lot of artists that seem to do predominantly editorial work. And I wonder, how do you make a living? How do you pay your bills? Well, I guess my opinion is that, I mean, the old method used to be where if you were working with an art director on like the New York Times is daily. So they're commissioning illustration kind of every day. And if you have a good relationship with them, it's more kind of a quantity game. And like with editorial illustration, you're really able to explore your craft and people are able to kind of take much bigger risks in the ways that they aren't in advertising. So I think there is there is kind of financial benefit and potentially financial regularity. And then if other art directors from other publications, you know, start working with you in that regard, because they see that you can tell stories in that way, you know, it is good, but it's definitely not what it used to be. It's definitely kind of harder to get that regularity. But I just think in terms of a training ground or in terms of just this infrastructure that can support and kind of give this type of work a leg up, I just think it's fantastic. And I just think, yeah, the art directors are really kind of making brave decisions and it's obviously being rewarded by readership. I just think, yeah, they are really pushing the medium forward. There's obviously also a different aesthetic that the New York Times has as well. And it might not be for everybody. I don't even know how to describe the aesthetic, but there is, is kind of definitely kind of something there. There's variety though. There is something there, but I think there is still, I'm impressed always by the variety from within one publication, because I think obviously like them having an aesthetic isn't a bad thing or, you know, or an unexpected thing because it is still as a whole one publication and the amount of variation they managed to get in within that kind of aesthetic in terms of methods of illustration and the, the materials, I think is really, really cool. Very impressive. Is there any particular artist or a piece that kind of stuck out to you on this one? Oh my God, that's such an impossible question because there are so <laughs> many. I think I was really surprised to see a mix of both like some really heavy hitters but and some of the names that I'm like, or even if they're not necessarily heavy hitters yet, but some of the the people that I'm like most, most excited about at the moment. And then also a whole lot of people I'd never heard of. And that is awesome. And it gives me hours and hours and hours worth of fun internet exploring to do. But it's also just really encouraging to see so many names that I, yeah, had never sort of come across and having, you know, worked in the illustration industry for so long, you and I and the rest of the people at Jackie Winter have a, a pretty good handle on a lot of the illustrators sort of out there and working frequently with publications like this. But there were quite a few names that were kind of new to me and that was really exciting. But I think, I mean, one of my absolute favorite at the moment is Eva Kremers, the sort of modeler and animator. And to see her on the list was very exciting. Oh, Max Guther is my pick. Oh, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a huge fan. Huge I mean, fan. Really beautiful. I just don't understand physically how he's able to do that much 3D on like an editorial base. And that's the other kind of scary thing. Like, yeah, the level of technical skill, I think, that goes into some of these pieces is amazing. The way 3D and animation are kind of being oh, used. So, the, yeah. On that note, the Julian Glander piece was just oh, so, 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 so good. I'm not a fan of this kind of interactive pencil thing that you can draw in on the margins, but, you know, it's a bit of a gimmick. Really? But, yeah, anyway. 
It is a bit gimmicky, but I love it. I think gimmicks have a place. And I'm always a big fan of the New York Times sort of way of exploring interactive web pages. And I I think given it's, I mean, yeah, they've had better examples for sure. Also, particularly the fact that once you draw, you can't sort of get it off because I was experimenting with it and drew all over one of the pieces (laughs) and now I can't actually see the artwork properly. So that was a bit of a problem. But I still applaud them for actually playing with interactivity in a way that most people don't. And good on them for crediting the illustrators and linking directly to their Instagrams and folios as well. So I just think, you know, in terms of just championing illustration, which, you know, is something that doesn't happen all the time in kind of one big feature, good on them for this. Laura, what do you got next? All right. All right. Next for me is, well, right heavy into this illustration animation realm that we're talking about. So this is a link to a post on It's Nice That, but of course, this has been posted about all over the internet and it's the first animated pictograms ever to be used in the Olympics. So this is for the Tokyo 2020 Games. And I think it's kind of interesting because this is, you know, Tokyo sort of had a real first back in their 1964 games because that was the first time that static pictograms were ever used. And just to, to clarify, when I'm saying pictograms, I mean the actual little individual illustration for each of the sports that is part of the games that is then used across everything from, I don't know, to like big screens and signage and posters and all sorts of marketing and informational materials. But as I said, this is the first time they've decided to animate them. There's 73 pictograms in total. So the static pieces were designed first by Mizaki Hiramura and they were released in March 2019. And then it took them more than a year to create the animated versions, they said. And the animation was done by motion designer Kota Iguchi. And I think they're really beautiful. They're very simple, which they kind of need to be. They're really cleanly done. And I just think it's exciting in general to kind of see motion brought into this space, especially because, you know, sport in itself is a very motion-driven thing. So it makes perfect sense. And I really love them. And so I think it's very much worth having a look at them. They are so good. I mean, I think this might be my favorite motion project of the year. I think just the the way, yeah, I mean, and just it recontextualizes like these very kind of familiar forms, but yeah, the way they're animated, it's it's so fluid. There's so much craft that goes into it. I'm not surprised it kind of took that long. I think it's beautiful. I mean, obviously we don't kind of know what's happening with the Olympics at the moment. I think as we're recording, Mm. this is a bit up in the air in terms of whether it's going to go forward with the whole coronavirus situation. But yeah, I think it's great that this has been highlighted here. I saw on Twitter someone, you know, in very typical Twitter fashion being like, it took them a year to do that. And it just made me so mad because yes, the final sort of product looks simple, but to create something that works that effectively, that simply, that beautiful swift motion takes a lot of time and a lot of expertise and a lot of tweaking. So that person can bugger off. Remember that comment when we get to a future link of mine, but yeah, no, that's, <laughs> mm, yeah. But yeah, also good on It's Nice Head for fixing their RSS feed as well, because their feed was broken for a while. I couldn't see anything. I actually had to manually go to the site to actually view all their posts, but it's all better now. So oh, shock horror. I know. My next link of the week is almost a bit of a continuation from the previous one. And this is kind of a similar piece that the Washington Post just published. My dad sent this to me. So thank you, dad. And this is called Art with a Point. And this is kind of an ongoing feature. So whereas the Times has kind of done a bit of a retrospective, the Post is actually doing a continually updating collection of standalone illustrations from the Washington Post magazine. And if you go right now, you can see Jackie Winter artist Matt Huynh right up there at the top from the March 1st issue. And yeah, this is just really great. 
when they relaunched the Washington Post magazine in October 2018, they actually created a space in each issue on the table of contents where just the art is kind of being heroed there itself. So again, great example of a magazine just kind of heroing illustration and giving that same consideration online. So yeah, that's great. It's also kind of interesting to see the difference in aesthetics there as well, where I definitely think the Washington Post has a different much more kind of straightforward, more traditional perspective where the New York Times, I think, is just much more dynamic, especially how they're using motion. So, you know, these are great tools, not just for, I guess, fans of illustration, but especially for other illustrators when they're kind of thinking about, you know, how to market themselves and they figure out kind of what the landscape is, what publications are commissioning, what what art directors are doing, what, and I guess, yeah, how to kind of look at their work and kind of see where it fits in the marketplace. So, yeah, it's great to kind of see this happen right now. Laura, do you have anything to add on this one? Yeah, I guess I just wanted to echo what you were saying, how I think it's such a lovely idea to see sort of big titan publications like this recognize that illustration can tell stories on its own and it doesn't necessarily need to be tied to a story, like a, a written story. I mean, The New Yorker does the same thing and I just absolutely love it and I think there's a real point to be made there and it's lovely that they're cataloged here online as well. Yeah, I just like all these publications making the artwork especially kind of a bit easier access, like similar to how The New Yorker has their mm. cartoon account on Instagram. It's like you can just get that content if you need it. So yeah, really great strategy. And I get the daily cartoon email, which I love. It's my favorite thing. And I still, every week, spend way too much time entering <laughs> the New Yorker cartoon caption contest, voting on the other entries. I love it. Your day will come soon. <laughs> What do you got next for us? Okay, so I have next something from Twitter because I don't know if we can go a week without sort of entering the Twitterverse. Basically, I am straight up obsessed with Twitter bots because there are just some amazing, clever, hilarious, and sort of disturbing bots out there. Obviously, some are total trash, but people are doing some really, really interesting things with code and Twitter. And today I want to highlight one that was created by Jia Zhang, which is called Census Americans. And basically, Jia, in a, there was a post somewhere reading that he he was writing about this bot that he created and it says census data is often seen at a large scale atlases research studies and interactive visualizations all offer the view from 10,000 feet but there are people inside those top line numbers and when you start to look at the people in the data sets you get a glimpse into their lives just a few descriptors how much they work whom they take care of where they were born can give us a sense of the people around us which is why i built a twitter bot that mines for details in the data it tweets short biographies of Americans based on data they provided to the U.S. Census Bureau between 2009 and 2013. Using a small Python program, the bot reconstitutes numbers and codes from the data into mini narratives. Once an hour, it turns a row of data into a real person. So just a couple of examples. I mean, and on their own, they're nothing that revolutionary, but I love, love seeing these in my feed. So one was, I haven't moved recently. I work for a private company. I was widowed. Another one read, I work less than 40 hours a week. I went to college for less than a year. I'm on active duty for training in the reserve slash National Guard. Or another one, I've been married a few times, more than twice. I had less than two weeks off last year. I drive to work. And basically, Census Americans just kind of inserts these strangers into your life at regular intervals. And I read that it's going to continue this automated task until it gets to the end of the 15,450,265 rows in the data set, which will take only about 1,760 years. So who knows if Twitter will exist then? But I love this. Again, it's not something that necessarily has a particular use, but I think there is so much data, just general, and the census is, you know, one of the biggest representations of that. And turning that back into kind of individual stories is a beautiful notion. 
Yeah, no, I mean, great execution. It's very, very poetic. And I think, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of artists are using Twitter as a medium for art. I find it really disturbing to kind of be in my feed, though. I mean, I think this is why lists are you know, great in that regard. And you can have separate things. But it's, yeah, it's an interesting concept. I'm interested that you actually kind of follow it and like it kind of sprinkled in your feed. Like, I like my feed. As I've, I've only just gotten on Twitter recently, but I like my feed to be very directed. And when I see that kind of stuff, like, I don't know, it just throws me off. Like, it just changes the vibe a bit. But yeah, I think this is honestly really kind this of well kind done. of thing is the main reason I'm on Twitter. The other Twitter bot that I really, really love is was it editing the Grey Lady, I think it's called, which is, yeah, they basically show it automatically shows any edits that have been done online in the New York Times and just shows how, which as a copy editor is really interesting to look at and see how they kind of, the evolution of a story as they get new information or as they decide to tweak certain words. And sometimes obviously they're correcting a spelling mistake or something, but very often they're actually changing headings, I guess, depending on user clicks and whatever. And it's just really fascinating. I absolutely love it. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. My next link for the week is somewhat related to what we were discussing before on the Paralympic animations. And so, Laura, you probably have heard of these, and I'm going to be butchering this names, but have you, before I posted a link, heard of Kurzgesagt? I have seen these videos before. I don't know. it. I mean, some of them are amazing. These are the ones that sort of explain all these incredible concepts, right? Yeah, so the Wikipedia entry, I'll just kind of quote from here. So they're a German animation studio founded by Philip Detmer, and their YouTube channel focuses on minimalist animated educational content using the flat design style. And yeah, they kind of- I think I actually brought them as an open tab link a few seasons ago. Very possible. I mean, since they've launched, they've racked over 861 million total views. And I think what they do is kind of interesting. I mean, the, the content is great that they explore. Like, it's awesome, often it's kind incredible. of very deep and philosophical or just plain interesting. I'm going to link in our show notes as well to my favorite thing that they've done, which is a piece called The Egg. It's based on a short story. It's one of my favorite short stories. If you haven't seen it, absolutely check it out. But yeah, this piece, which I found posted on kotkey.org from the previous week, is a recent piece that actually comes a bit more kind of meta and talks about how they actually can make their pieces and how it takes a total of 1200 hours to make some of their videos. And I think it's great to get this insight. I mean, their videos are great. I think they've tapped into a style that is very popular at the moment. Or I mean, it's and they've kind of evolved it as well, because you could say it's drawing a lot on that kind of Google material design language, but they've kind of evolved and done new things with it. And I think especially as 2D animators are working more with Cinema 4D, as a lot of animators are, it's kind of giving much more dimension and richer storytelling there. But this just kind of goes into the animation process, really, and kind of shows how something goes from idea to finish process and everything in between. And the reason I love this piece is because animation, I think, is something really that takes a lot of time to do. Even like, you know, we have talked before about how the tools are becoming a bit more decentralized and fewer people can work on richer animation projects. But still, at the end of the day, it takes a lot of time. And I've found, especially as a producer, when we're kind of negotiating with clients, especially on animation, this can be kind of the hardest thing to get across because everyone kind of feels like, I think maybe graphic designers especially kind of will get this a lot. Where like, oh, you know, can't you just Photoshop something? You know, this idea that mm -hmm. there's this magical box that you can put things in where, you know, and it's called Photoshop and it can fix everything. And I think especially the more people kind of see animation around, the more the expectations have been misaligned in terms of how long these things take. So I love that they've taken their own work as the subject for this piece and used kind of the same storytelling that they've taken with other deep, unexplainable things and tried to put into something very practical. So I definitely think this is kind of something we could potentially show clients or even fellow producers kind of understand why things do take a lot of time because yeah, doing good things does take time. Laura, did you like this piece? 
I have to admit I haven't yet watched it, but I'm really, really oh. keen to. It looks great. I really love what they do. And I remember the first one I think I watched, it might not be the first one, but one I watched sort of more recently was the Wormholes video that they did. And I think this whole idea of like when words and imagery, be that like static or animated, can really, really marry to make complex concepts actually digestible for whoever it is that wants to learn about them. That is the heart of every role I've ever done and why I work in copy, why I worked at Jackie Winter for so long, why I have production or strategy. Those are That's really at the heart of it. And so for me, this is kind of like a really perfect example of that. And to get some insight into the actual process is super, super cool. I'm very excited to watch this, Jeremy. Awesome. What do you got next? Okay. Okay. So next I have something that ties back to what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, which is the Travis Bot experiment from agency Space 150, where they kind of trained this neural network to create a new song in the style of the rapper Travis Scott. And I am embarrassed. I know, Jeremy, you kind of raised some of this when we were talking about it, but I'm embarrassed to admit that what I didn't really cover then was the ethical implications of that project when I spoke about it. I was really excited by the technology and just sort of ignored the main issue here, which is using someone's likeness to create new material. And as we found out since, without consent, they didn't get in touch with Travis Scott for consent. So how do we deal with the sampling and reproduction of an existing artist's musical likeness when someone completely unrelated stands to profit from that, whether that's financially or through publicity. And so this piece this week, it comes from The Fader and it's a really good interview with Holly Herndon, who is a Berlin-based composer who she essentially collaborated with this AI-generated baby (laughs) called Spawn on her 2019 album called Proto. So she kind of does some work in this space and she raised this issue on her Twitter about how consent plays into AI projects such as Travis Bott. And as usual, I think once the dust has all settled, in the end, the discussions around Made With AI are actually just far more compelling than whatever that project was itself. And Holly's not only created work in this space herself, but she actually wrote her PhD on modern sampling culture. And she has some really insightful viewpoints on this whole topic, in particular around how we feel kind of entitled to sample not only music, but human beings themselves. And the general reaction from the public, myself included, how it's kind of sort of, wow, cool tech, not, oh my God, you've just stolen someone's likeness. And she discusses how we live in a society where the notion of information wants to be free is sort of music to Silicon Valley's ears because they can create products and create value on top of other people's efforts without ever having to think about remuneration. But also hardcore IP law usually only benefits the people who own a lot of IP like major labels. And there are arguments to be made on both sides of the fence, of course. But what she notes is that it does ask us to question, like, what's the logical conclusion of these viewpoints? Like, is it okay to literally sample someone's personhood? Are we okay with that as a society? And if we are okay with that, how does that play out within the existing power structures that we already have in society? And her views on where kind of this tech and concept could go, should go, and will probably go from here are definitely well worth a read. She's a really interesting voice on this topic. Yeah, it's <laughs> super deep. I mean, it's it's great to be opened up to these kind of discussions. I think, yeah, there's a whole, obviously, part of the industry and academia devoted to kind of ethics in tech that I haven't even dipped my toes in. I mean, I'm still struggling with my own kind of smaller, yeah, just day-to-day kind of things. But Ethical no, this is crisis. definitely... I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't want to get too deep. (laughs) Other podcast potential name right there. But yeah, no, I don't want to wade into it too much. But yeah, I think it's it's an interesting continuation on from last week's piece. So thanks for bringing it to the table. I will close off with my last link for the week. And so this is, I mean, 
just a video on demand series of workshops for a professor from Canada named Dr. Stuart McGill, who wrote this book called Back Mechanic. And I, I, I don't know if I've talked about it a lot here on the show, but I had a major back injury and I had spinal surgery around four years ago. And I am always in a ongoing quest to rehabilitate my back. And yeah, this book, Back Mechanic, I think has been really revolutionary for me in terms of trying to treat my own back pain, like with my physios and other kind of people that I work with. And I recently kind of had another bout, like, you know, it kind of flares up because I'm old and everything on my body breaks every week. But yeah, the book, Back Mechanic, which is really great. And he's kind of done a video series to kind of augment that I'm working my way through the videos at the moment. I mean, not only is he just an amazing character, so his whole brand is just basically a drawing of his enormous white mustache, like which is very <laughs> wide and very bushy. And so spot on on the branding over there. But he's got the subject that he's working with, I think, like a patient or student of his or whatever. And I don't know, the dynamic between them as he tries to kind of manipulate this person and go through the exercises is one of the most uncomfortably awkward things I've ever ever experienced yeah. on film. But it's also really good to kind of see the motions because like, I'm a real visual person. I need to understand how it works. And I've even been in like having my body kind of manipulated. I never get it. But anyway, this is just kind of a bit of a, you know, shout out to anyone else who has back pain and has kind of struggled with it. I can't recommend this enough. It's a really great method uh, to kind of read and then work with someone one on one. So yeah, I'm still working through the videos. But yeah, I'm going through it at the moment. I mean, Laura, you have done or still do some weight training as well. Like, did you ever kind of use any online stuff? like this at all or was it all kind of IRL? I mean, my trainer is also my like long-term partner. So I feel like I don't really need to look up too much stuff online. Like I have a personal kind of <laughs> person to deal with this stuff. And I'm lucky that my back pain, I seem, I had used to have like horrible back issues like the last couple of years. And I seem to have kind of relieved most of it through strength training and exercise stuff, which is awesome. But Jeremy, I hope yours alleviates soon. Thank you very much. Laura, take us through your last link of the week. All right. So this is my weekly food related link, which I'm actually, I'm not doing on purpose. I just, so much of my time on the internet revolves around food. So look, this is a very important link. It comes from my just favorite food related place on the internet, I think, which is Food52. And they have done a deep dive into basically how to, well, the absolute best way to cook chicken breasts according to 28 different tests. So the whole idea is like, how can you go boneless and skinless without going flavorless? And chicken breasts have their place, but they are boring. And so I applaud this very serious research. As you know, I am really into anyone who is as kind of anal as I am about finding out the very, very best way to do something. And they tried 14 different methods and they did it twice to just kind of make sure that the results were similar. And they tried things like, you know, stovetop low and slow, stovetop sear, oven roast high, oven roast low, poaching in water, poaching in chicken broth, broiling, etc. There's like a million different, well, 14 different ways. And I want to read from the article here. They say, the name of the game when dealing with chicken breasts is to avoid overcooking the meat. The middle name of the game is to warn your roommate that you're cooking 28 of them so he doesn't walk in on you in your pajamas surrounded by raw poultry at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday. I conducted two tests for each of the 14 methods with breasts that were all roughly one inch at their thickest points. Before seasoning, I gave every breast a whack or two with a rolling pin to even them out for uniform cooking without going full on cutlet. Unless otherwise noted, each breast was rubbed with the same quantity of olive oil and kosher salt, which uh, I love everything about this. And in the end, they sort of have given what they think are the best methods for the juiciest or the best crust or the most flavorful or the most efficient and which ones to skip altogether. For example, microwaving, duh. And I'm just not going to give you the answers because they're complex. And I think you need to just go read it if this is content that interests you. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, yeah, might consider that at one point, combining with the potatoes from last week, maybe we'll have a whole Mm -hmm. kind of meal by the time we finish the season. (laughs) I'll give you a salad next week. Thank you. Before we go, it is time for Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down, Shaka, the time we dedicate each week to talk about something, to fill it in our newsletter template. Laura, what do you have for us this week? Okay, this is something that happens to me maybe a few times a year, and each time it does, I'm like equally disappointed, and I'm sure everyone has felt this. But, you know, when you come across something on the internet that seems really, really interesting or really cool, and then you realize that it's fictional. Like, I don't know if you've, I've had this with podcasts before as well, thinking that it's like an amazing true story. And then I find out that it's fictional and it just ruins the magic for me. I started watching this video earlier before, which was like the first time a cult member hears music and it's presented as a documentary, like a mini documentary and this interview with her. And then they play music and she starts crying. But then it gets really weird from there. And I was thinking like, I don't know, this can't be real. And I eventually sort of dug deeper into it. And yes, it was just a fictional short film that someone did for an awards thing. And it's still a beautiful piece, but I was watching it for the cult action, not to see some kind of fictional representation of that. And that really annoyed me. And you feel so stupid. Plus, before I'd finished and realized that it was fake, I'd already sent the link to my dad being like, hey, how cool is this? You have to watch it. And so I kind of duped him too. And it just, it all feels icky. Oh, that is, you know, I cannot sympathize with that situation, but I. I what? Hear that you. hasn't happened to you? <laughs> no. <laughs> Damn. What do you got? I have a high thumbs up this week for the worthy replacement for Wonderlist. So I can finally report after all of my complaints and all of my kind of weeks of research, I have fully migrated over to a new app called TickTick. And I don't know what else to say except that it is a fantastic Wonderlist replacement. It works exactly like Wonderlist, maybe even a bit better. It's got the quick ad. It's a native app. You can share. It does cost money. It costs like 24 bucks a year to kind of use. But yeah, I'm really pumped about it. It imported everything from Wonderlist. I'm using it mm. like perfectly at the moment. And I got to say one other thing, like another reason I didn't even think about that I didn't like Microsoft to do was that I access all of my apps through Spotlight. So I hit, you know, Apple Spacebar and type the name of the mm-hmm. app. And it was impossible to get Microsoft to do up. Wonderlist was great because all you'd have to do is hit Apple Spacebar and then type W-U-N and it would kind of come up. With Microsoft to do, it's like you had to type Microsoft, you had to put to do and nothing would come up. And so, yeah, with TickTick, you just have to type the same thing and it kind of, it comes up a bit quicker. But yeah, I love it. It's great. I highly recommend it. And yeah, that's really kind of all I got for this week. I was wondering when you were finally going to reveal to everyone, because you told me in one of the happiest messages of my life, you know, a month or two ago, like, I finally found a replacement for Wonderlist, and I was very reluctant to trust you, but you're right. It's really great. And I agree. I think it's almost maybe better than Wonderlist, except for one thing. My big thing was that I need QuickAd. That's 99% of the time how I use my list apps is with QuickAd. And the only problem with TickTick's QuickAd is that anything you put in QuickAd, it adds directly to your inbox. You can't choose what list it's going into. And that's a problem for me. So I'm going to have to write them an email, I think. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, they definitely seem to be picking up the pace of their development to, um, I guess, pick up some of these customers from Wonderlist. But yeah, the reason it took me so long is because I yeah, wanted to give it a go. You know, I've been burned many times before. I didn't want to get everyone a bum steer. Oh, yeah. bum steer. But yeah, I can confirm this is the business. Okay, I think that'll do us for this week. Thank you very much. You are welcome. It made me nauseous. 
I'm Jeremy Wartzman. She's Laura Chan Baker, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by totally unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. And if you want more episodes, archives of all of our shows can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. To receive artwork, links to all of our open tabs and updates on all things Jackie Winter, you can sign up at our newsletter at JWG.Is slash newslettering. You can also find us on Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y, Winter like the season. And get in touch at podcast at JackieWinter.com. If you want to hear more about Laura, you can follow her on Instagram at Laura underscore high tiff or Laura Chan Baker. That's one word on Twitter. Remember this is an enhanced podcast. If you listen to this using a supportive player, you'll be able to see relevant visual content as we go on. And if you work for an ad agency or design studio and are interested in our live extended version of Open Tabs, be sure to check out Open Tabs at Rodeo for more info. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye bye.